0: Hey everyone, my name is Nick Woodnall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. Today I'm talking with Melody Wilding, a leadership and executive coach who specializes in helping sensitive high achievers who are tired of getting in their own way. In the conversation, we cover what it means to be a sensitive striver, whether fake it till you make it is good advice, when it's a good idea to follow your intuition and trust your gut and when you should ignore it, And most importantly, we spent a lot of time talking about imposter syndrome, including Melody's answers to listener questions like how to build resilience against imposter syndrome, how to get better at accepting compliments and praise, and how company culture can influence imposter syndrome. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Melody Wilding, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Let's start off with a term you're maybe best known for, which is sensitive strivers. Can you tell us what is a sensitive striver exactly?
1: A sensitive striver is someone who is both high achieving and highly sensitive. So they are very driven. They love pushing themselves to exceed expectations and hit goals. They're very career oriented, not necessarily to climb the ladder, but to make an impact and keep continually learning, growing and challenging themselves. But then on the other hand, they are also highly sensitive. So they are people who are attuned to their surroundings, they're deep thinkers and feelers. They are more aware and pick up on their own emotions, process them more deeply as well as those of other people. So it's really that combination of ambition with a fundamental sensitivity of being more affected by the world and everything around you that when those two qualities come together can be a tremendous, astra <laughs> tremendous asset and strength. But if it is not managed properly, or you don't have the right tools to keep those qualities both in balance, can lead to some downsides.
0: Yeah, and I want to talk about that for a second. But one kind of little wrinkle on that question that I'm, I'm sort of curious about is, and you sort of hinted at this, that on, on the sensitive side, it's, it seems like it's both a sensitivity um, outwardly, like to other people, how other people are feeling, how environment kind of affects. Um, them and other people. But then there's also kind of an introspective, sensitive to their own stuff, feelings, thoughts, beliefs, whatever. Um, So do you see, is that, is there like a tendency one way or the other? Or do do people who are, are people who are sensitive generally pretty sensitive to both of those things? Or do you often see it with like one without the other?
1: Mm -hmm. Excellent question. So sensitivity is just like any other personality trait introversion, extroversion, you know, conscientiousness, neuroticism, the, the ocean, the big five. So it exists on a spectrum, right? You can be more sensitive or less sensitive. So people many times fall in that spectrum. Some of my clients are much more externally focused, and we can talk about that. Um, others are internally, but typically it's the combination of both because what we know about high sensitivity, it's a well-studied trait. It's been studied for over 30 years. Dr. Elaine Aron, who was the first to really term this trait, uh, the key researcher in it, has really found that it evolved because it was advantageous. It was advantageous to have someone in the group who was Thoughtful and deliberate and measured in their actions didn't just run into danger, but also attuned and sensed subtleties in the environment so they could hear a rustling in the bushes, for example, and then have the uh, thoughtfulness not to rush into that sort of dangerous situation. So that's why sensitivity has stuck around and evolved And the science shows if you look at brain images of people with higher sensitivity, they both have activation in areas of the brain that lead to deeper internal processing of information. Uh, So uh, areas related to action planning, decision making, uh, concentration, but also areas of the brain related to social interactions. So people who have high sensitivity have more active mirror neurons, which are basically the empathy neuron, which helps us understand other people's behavior. So that's why we tend to be so attuned to social interactions, affected and understanding of other people's emotions is because we have this different neurological wiring. So to answer your question, it is it is both and both internal and external depth of processing.
0: Yeah, and I, I love the evolutionary angle. It's it's something I use a lot because I, I feel like it's very validating for people to realize that these some of these traits, which it, at times can really feel like disabilities, almost like major weaknesses. Like oh, I'm just so sensitive, everything like affects me so much and I feel everything so much. Um, I think it's ultimately it's kind of empowering to remember that yes, it, it it does make things hard, but this is also a it's a it's a great strength and there's a reason this trait sort of sticks around and why it benefits. Uh, It it can be hard for us individually at times, but it really benefits the whole kind of community and group to have someone um, with that kind of trait. So I I love that angle. I'm glad you kind of brought that up. So you walk through to kind of flesh out this idea of the sensitive driver. You've sort of pulled out six core qualities that that sort of define this Um, sensitivity, thoughtfulness, responsibility, inner drive, vigilance, and emotionality. So I'm not going to have you go yes. through the whole thing here. <laughs> but I think as people listening, if they do kind of fall into this this type of, of being a sensitive striver, um, I'm pretty sure you can resonate with all of those, just hearing those one-word descriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 one of the themes that is in a lot of your writing and in your, your, your new book is is kind of this idea of, and these are my words, not yours, but the double-edged sword kind of nature of some of these mm-hmm. things, where some of these, these traits, like um, responsibility is an interesting one they can be, um, it's all about balance, right? They can be, if unbalanced, they can be really, um, unhelpful, right? But if, when they're in balance, they can be tremendously helpful to us. So maybe kind of walk us through that idea with let's, let's use one of the, let's use responsibility. So what would it look like to be, to have this responsibility trait, but in a way that's unbalanced, like what would that look like if Mm -hmm. your sense of responsibility was unbalanced?
1: Yeah. So responsibility in particular is when it's unbalanced can look like overfunctioning, can look like swooping in to fix every situation, even when it's not in your purview, Uh, wanting to put other people's needs ahead of your own. So a bit of people pleasing mixed in there as well. Um, rescuing people from situations. So for example, you may be the one on the team who pulls all nighters when everybody else gets to go off and enjoy time with their family. But you're the one who takes on the responsibility for this thing has to get done and I'll be the one to push it through. It can look like feeling guilty for never doing enough. So you are so responsible for outcomes that there is never enough you could do to fix a situation. And I'll give you a great example of this. I was just talking to a client before we hopped on and she was talking about this conflict she had had at work where she had to assert some of her boundaries And her unbalanced responsibility was showing up in what could I have done differently? What could I have said differently? Or how could I have acted differently to prevent this conflict and this person getting upset with me? And there there was nothing. Sometimes when you assert a boundary, people are going to be upset with you. But still, her unbalanced responsibility was showing up there as a need to want to fix or appease or make the situation better. And it can also look like struggling to say no or asking for help. Uh, You may be so overly responsible and think you are the one who has to solve everything to the point where asking for help evokes a sense of shame. I should be the expert. I should know how to do everything. I should be the one to be able to handle this all by myself. And never saying no, (laughs) again, because you feel like you have to be the team player or the one in the family who keeps everything together. So I was just, uh, again, earlier today talking to a different client about how he is the tech support in his family. So whenever anyone has any sort of problem, all throughout the day, they're knocking on his door saying, Dad, the printer's broken. Dad, I can't get on Wi-Fi. And you can create a dynamic where people are so over-dependent on you that they do not know how to empower themselves to find their own problems or to solve their own problems rather. And of course it can lead to you being resentful. Um, so that's where this responsibility can become unbalanced. That, that drive to be dedicated, uh, reliable can go astray if it's taken too far.
0: Yeah. And in my own work anyway, from what I've seen working with, with my own clients is that one of the things that makes Kind of rebalancing this so hard is that for a lot of people who struggle with this, this is kind of like the water they swim in. Like it's been like this since yes. they were five years old, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. So it,
0: it's it's very difficult to even consider a sort of a new normal, right? Kind of a rebalance. So w- what does that look like? Like in your experience with people when they actually try to bring more balance to something like this, um, how like w- what are kind of the some of the common like obstacles there, and then what have you seen? actually help for people to find like this new normal um, when it comes to responsibility. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So much of, of what we have to do in coaching with people. I mean, one reason I developed the entire strive framework and the tool in the book, the wheel of balance that goes along with it is to give people a way to prioritize where you need to start looking at where your where your strive qualities may be most unbalanced and where, the biggest opportunities for you lie so that it doesn't feel so overwhelming that I have so much about me that I feel I need to fix or that is broken or that makes me feel inadequate or taken advantage of by other people so that we can prioritize. So I always start there with clients, but specifically so much of this comes down to looking at our own conditioned beliefs about who we are supposed to be, how we're supposed to show up in the world as sensitive people, because... As people who are sensitive drivers, like you said, we grow up. The water we swim in is that you're not good enough. Stop being so sensitive. Why do you take everything so personally? And because of that, we start to stifle who we really are. And we tend to put on a performance showing up as who we think people want us to be. And so a lot of that conditioning can lead to a feeling like we have to do more for people, we have to uh, achieve really high and and please other people in order to feel good enough because we're not good enough just as we are, right? It's it's bad to be sensitive, so let me try to be something else in order to feel good enough. So a lot of my work with clients in the beginning is even extricating, starting to pull out and tease out these unhelpful stories that are leading to these patterns of self-sabotage because and you know this, that our our thoughts create our actions. And so if our beliefs are that we're inadequate and uh, will never be enough, then our actions are going to follow suit, right? Or if we don't respect ourselves, and this is typically what I see with clients is that they don't value respect themselves, then how can you ever expect other people to do that? And so all of our actions follow suit with not being uh, not being self-respecting, actions, right? So that's typically where I start with people is just looking at what are these stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and how we are showing up in the world and how do we start to undo those?
0: Yeah. So that transitions to the, an idea that you bring up in your book um, that I think we've all we've all heard probably a lot, which is the concept of fake it till you make it. Um, so you Maybe, you know, you should, um, your sense of responsibility is kind of unbalanced and you, you need to kind of step back a little bit, right. And allow other people to sort of take on some of that responsibility, but it just feels wrong, right? Like allowing, how could I allow my son or allow my team member at work or whatever to struggle when I could do it? I know I could just do it. Right. Um, so it, it, it can, obviously feel really hard to start to do that. Um, but there, so this idea of fake it till you make it, um, it it's a thing a lot of people hear, well, it's going to feel weird, but you just got to start doing it and, um, and kind of, you know, fake it till you make it. Now, you, I'm, I'm of kind of two minds on this, and I really want to pick your brain about this and see how you mm-hmm. think through this. Um, because on the one hand, like, as you point out in the book, people use this idea of fake it till you make it often to kind of, like, distract from, their feelings and and sort of in those beliefs and what's going on in their head they're like oh i don't know i just got to just got to be this new person right and that can be pretty counterproductive on the other hand like there is something to the idea right of you're if you want to do something differently you're never going to it's never it's not going to feel normal like there is going to be some amount of like well this feels uncomfortable but i just need to do it because it's it's something i value and it's it's the right thing to do mm-hmm. for me um so how i don't know how do, I, i'm just Obviously I'm not looking for like a specific answer but I'm more curious about how you think through this dilemma when it comes to the idea of kind of fake it till you make it. I don't know if that makes sense but
1: It it absolutely does and I think I'm I'm right on board with you that what I find problematic about the phrase is that there's this idea it perpetuates this idea that we should all continue wearing masks and pushing away those feelings of doubt in hope that we will reach a point where we finally feel good enough. Right. Just keep just keep doing more. Just keep trying harder. Just act confident and then you'll feel confident. Right. But it it doesn't work that way. And so to me, it has this element of bypassing That goes along with it where I think what you're saying and I am also I also completely agree and there's an entire chapter in the book about taking risks and doing hard things. But I think it's fundamentally about um, uh, addressing the feelings of inadequacy and moving through them so you can both feel something. And act in a different way. Whereas I think where fake it till you make it is problematic is that it's, well, don't pay attention to those feelings. They don't really matter. Just because you feel that way, just act differently and show up as confident. And then you'll automatically feel confident. And I think also what what, uh, rubs me the wrong way about the phrase is that it feels a little uh, dependent on the perceptions of other people. So if other people think you look confident, then that's what matters the most versus you actually feeling confident and secure in yourself. And sometimes being confident and secure in yourself is, hey, I actually don't know what what I'm talking about here. And I'm not the expert in this. And that is confidence. But fake it till you make it has this kind of false bravado, I think, has come to be associated with it. And that's what rubs me the wrong way.
0: That's a great point about the social component to fake it, it kind of reinforces that idea that yeah it's about how you're yeah. perceived rather than how what y- you feel kind of internally
1: so that exactly
0: that again is a perfect segue to um, kind of the, the the really big topic that i I wanted to ask you about and I know a lot of um, my listeners are really curious to hear your take on which is imposter syndrome right like just the idea of being mm-hmm. a fake and feeling like a fake um, so I think you know everybody's every, everybody's generally pretty familiar with the idea of imposter syndrome so what I want to kind of do is just sort of dive into some specific questions that a bunch of my readers sent in um that they wanted me to ask you specifically. So I thought what we'd do is let's just kinda rapid fire go through some of these questions and give us your best kind of concise answer. Um it's not exactly a lightning yeah. round, but um <laughs> with just you know what's or even just like, what's the first thing that comes to mind um, when, when you kind of hear these questions? And so we'll go through a handful of these. And then, um, and then there, was, there was one question I got that it's like a perfect case study. Someone kind of laid out their particular situation with imposter syndrome with lots of details. Um, and I'd love to kind of get your take on like, how it, like, if that person was a client beginning to work with you, like, how would you think through their story and kind of where might you take that? Um, so let's, let's sort of dive into this if, if, you're, if you're game. Um,
1: of course. Yeah, let's go.
0: First question, and I'm very curious about this one because I am a relatively new parent. I got a bunch of little kids um, running around. How can parents help their kids avoid developing imposter syndrome? This is a big one right off mm. the bat, but any, any thoughts on that?
1: Such a, such a great question, too, and says a lot about this person as a parent. Uh, you know, I think one of the, the first things that came to mind when I, when I heard this question is creating psychological safety. We talk a lot about psychological safety in the workplace, but it goes for at home too because so many of our, our, our upbringing influences the development of imposter syndrome as an adult. So creating psychological safety in terms of encouraging your, your kids to take risks, that experimentation and play and uh, failures are not bad but it is data. It is a natural normative part uh, of, of what you do. That would be the first thing. Also being aware of labels. You're the smart one, the good girl. Uh, you're our top student, right? You're the rock star of the family. Those types of labels can create, even though they're well-meaning, can create expectations that children feel either locked into or a lot of pressure to live into. So just being mindful of how you use those labels, um, as well as prioritizing recognition. You know, as, as parents, I think a lot of times we uh, well, not we, because I'm not a parent yet, but we may over-index on corrective or negative feedback. Stop doing that. Why did you do this? Rather than prioritizing recognition of the things you did do well, praising effort, you know, Carol Dweck in growth mindset, praising effort versus outcome, um, but also coaching your children to say, what do you think you really did well there? What are you most proud of yourself for? And really building that very strong base of self-esteem to have them self-reflect on internalizing their accomplishments and the aspects of themselves they are most proud of.
0: How can you get better at genuinely accepting praise and compliments?
1: I... Love this question. And I'm laughing a little bit, because whenever I do workshops on imposter syndrome, and particularly when we used to be able to be in person, I would do an exercise where, well, let me say, this is a great question, because part of imposter syndrome is pushing away is is Undermining your own efforts and pushing away praise and positive feedback. So, very happy this person asked this. And when I would do these workshops in person, the final exercise we would do that people always commented on was their favorite is giving people a genuine compliment and learning to accept a genuine compliment. So, I would get people into pairs and have one person give the other person a real compliment, not your hair looks nice or I like your shirt, but you are so amazing at your job and here's what i really appreciate about working with you or here's how you've made an impact on me whatever it is something with some depth and then the other person receiving the feedback all they can say is i receive and accept your compliment you can't say anything else besides that and i have them i have i have this go this exchange go a few times so you get comfortable taking in a couple of pieces of praise and then we we come back together and say what was well, what was easy about that? What was difficult? And people say it was always so hard to just sit there and take the compliment without giving one in return. Oh no, you're amazing too. Or undermining myself saying, oh, but it was a team effort. That was really nothing. So-and-so did better. And I would, I would offer that exercise to this listener to say, you could do that with your partner, a friend who it feels safe with, even just to start to, uh, associate yourself with what happens in the moment when you get compliments uh that's the first thing i would say but also just a brief thank you just getting used to saying thank you a tweet length response to a compliment not thank you so much and then verbal vomiting a whole reasoning why it didn't matter um th- those would be my two tips there
0: those are great it it falls into this category of things that I, I think are kind of underappreciated, which are, I think of them as subtraction problems, not addition problems, are, are kind mm-hmm. of default when mm-hmm. I've, I've got some problem, like, you know, I can't take compliments well. What do I need to do? What do I need to do more of? And there's this whole set of problems where it's actually what the, the frame to think about it is, what do I need to do less of? And if I just don't add exactly. this stuff, it's gonna be uncomfortable for a little while, but it's actually gonna get better kind of on its own. It's about what you do less of, not necessarily yeah. more of. So I, both of those tips are great, yeah. I think.
1: Can I add one more?
0: Yeah, totally. Uh,
1: I'd also add sort of an advanced tip is getting comfortable engaging with the praise. Because many times we say, oh, yeah, thanks, thanks. And we sort of just move on. But allowing the positivity to linger and actually asking the person an open-ended question to go deeper of, thanks so much for that compliment on the work. What about it made the biggest impact for you? And sitting with it, getting the other person's perspective on it can also actually unearth for you, what actually are my strengths? What do people appreciate about me? And it's just a good exercise of sitting with the good and allowing that to expand rather than really only doing that for the negative.
0: I love that. It's such a good way to, I think, to build intimacy which is a, I think like kind of an underappreciated word. It's always talked about in terms of like romantic relationships and couples yeah. therapy and stuff like that. But intimacy is, intimacy is so important for all sorts of relationships and it happens on so many different levels, but it's kind of this abstract thing. Um, but that what you just described is such a great way to foster intimacy, like in, in any kind of relationship, right? Just like to go beyond that surface level and ask like, actually, let's talk more about that. Let's kind of go into depth a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah. that's great. Excellent. Yeah. hmm Okay. Another question. Um, How do I know if imposter syndrome is something I can work through on my own or if it's something I should get professional help for?
1: Yeah. Excellent question. And so let let me say that imposter syndrome is a bad name, (laughs) uh, because it's not actually a medical syndrome in any way. But, uh, I think unfortunately it has received that sort of expectation, but it is not a mental health diagnosis. It is not something that you can go to a doctor and get diagnosed for actually the original researchers who discovered imposter syndrome called it imposter phenomenon because it was really, uh, more a collection of certain thoughts and behaviors than it was a formal medical diagnosis. And so they were very careful about that. But somewhere along the way, that got lost. And we called it imposter syndrome. So I just wanted to say that. And uh, also, one of the biggest myths about imposter syndrome is that it tends to come up, the feelings of self-doubt tend to come up Anytime you're doing something new. And that is not necessarily imposter syndrome. And so I want to be uh I wanna be careful about this because you can have a completely normative response, a completely normative moment of self-doubt that is not technically imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is Really, when your self perception doesn't match the data of the situation. So, let's say you have been in your job for a long time, yet, and you've had positive performance reviews, maybe you've received a promotion, yet, you still don't feel qualified. You feel as if any day you're going to get fired that's more imposter syndrome rather than getting a new role in a different industry that you have never worked in before and feeling a little bit unsure about whether you'll be successful. That is much more normative. Uh, So I wanted to ground it in that. But imposter syndrome really, if you start to notice that these feelings of inadequacy and self-doubt and the anxiety associated with it are really starting to affect your performance in a profound way that it is holding you back from speaking up in meetings that you are not raising your hand for opportunities. Um, You're not uh, leaving a job. That's not a good situation for you because you're afraid that no one will hire you because you're incompetent. Um, That would be a good signed that you may need some help from an outside party, probably someone like a a coach. But if you notice your imposter syndrome is starting to become debilitating to the point where you can't focus during the day, it's keeping you up at night. Uh, if it is really starting to affect your your health, your well-being, and starting to stop you from being able to do your job and live your life. That is where you need to see a therapist or another mental health professional who can really, who can really support you with that.
0: So a a lot of imposter syndrome seems to come up in, uh, in the context of work and the workplace. So I thought this question was interesting, which was, um, in your experience, how does company culture influence imposter syndrome? I know it's Mm -hmm. a huge question, but any thoughts on that?
1: Absolutely. And You're right. Just to answer your question about imposter syndrome and professional uh, aspects. So that is one reason it is not a mental health condition is because it's not typically pervasive. Uh, You may feel imposter syndrome in specific situations where you feel like your performance is being evaluated 99% of the time that's at work, but many parents, new parents, you know, or or parents feel like an imposter. Uh, That's another situation where your performance might be evaluated. But to get to the question of company culture affecting imposter syndrome, it has been shown companies that tend to have more competitive culture, more cutthroat, where there's a lot of comparison uh, I see it a lot in the consulting industry where things are extremely fast-paced, uh, very aggressive. Those sort of cultures tend to breed imposter syndrome, as do ones where there is not uh, there is not good diversity, where there is a lack of inclusion. Um, and so there's definitely a conversation around intersectionality that has to happen here where people who... Uh, literally are underrepresented, feel like outsiders, and feel more like an imposter. And so that tends to happen for a lot of women in technology, since it tends to be a male-dominated field, for example. Um, And let's see. I mentioned competitiveness. uh, I mentioned gender. um, Oh, and where there's a lack of mentors. So anywhere, if your company, uh, if you are kind of Uh, If you don't have a lot of support from your boss, for example, or you don't have good uh, mentors who can show you the ropes, uh, that can really leave you isolated and then amplify that feeling of I I have no idea what I'm doing. And also um, because you don't have folks who are normalizing the experience of, yes, it's completely normal. I in my career have gone through this same thing. It makes you feel like you're the only one suffering with this.
0: It's so interesting how um in my mind as you were describing these things i was kind of thinking if you just substituted the the like work vocabulary for parenting vocabulary it sounds a lot like your answer to the first question which is how do you help your kids avoid imposter syndrome right like it's really interesting Mm -hmm. that it's um how does kind of culture broadly speaking well culture does really impact the, the origins of imposter syndrome, right? And so it's, it's not just a, I need to dig deep and just like figure out what's wrong with me and fix it, right? And read some good self-help books and like, that'll do it. like, no, it depends on your, your context, your cultural and kind of communal context quite a bit. That's great. Okay. Last, last reader question here. How can we build resilience against imposter syndrome?
1: Mm. Well, first is is normalizing it, realizing that you know seventy percent of people experience imposter syndrome at some point in their career, and the more recent studies I've shown I've seen have said that about fifty percent of both men and women experience it daily. So even just recognizing that. Even though you may feel like the only one going through this, you are far from the only one. And every time I do presentations at companies, people are always shocked by the other people who are in the room because they're used to looking at those people and saying, wow, that that person has it all together. Their decks are amazing. They always crush it in meetings. Yet they're here in this imposter syndrome presentation because they experience the exact same things. So, realizing just statistically, the people around you go through this as well. And then building resilience to imposter syndrome really comes down to your own self-management, right? Better regulation of and examination of your own thoughts and emotions. So such a huge part of imposter syndrome is being able to tackle the negative self-talk that comes along with it and start to change those tracks in your head that say, I can't do this, and then lead to self-sabotaging behaviors, things like perfectionism, procrastination, overfunctioning, as I was mentioning, to starting to ingrain and, you know, pick up the needle and put it on a different track of ones that are more accurate, are are healthier, are more self-compassionate, and then that get you different results.
0: I think I, I like the normalizing point too. I think that's so important. And I, I like that you kind of put that before the the kind of self-work of just acknowledging mm-hmm. yourself like this is this is very normal statistically, <laughs> right? But it, as you pointed out early on, it's, it's normal from an evolutionary point of view, right? That you kind of are, we're kind of always comparing and thinking about ourselves in context of community. And there's a lot of it that is very normal. And um, getting, feeling bad about feeling bad is not a great way to work through anything. So, exactly. so start, and and start, start by not feeling bad about feeling bad, uh, and then work your way up.
1: Emotional reasoning, right? Yeah. That just because you feel like an imposter does not mean you are an imposter. And that, that was a big light bulb for me when I heard it because I am so, since I am such a deep thinker, I'm so used to taking my thoughts so literally. <laughs> and building that muscle of actually questioning them and pressure testing them was huge for me and, and such a big part of my work with clients.
0: Okay. this I was going to ask you about this later on, but I think this is a really natural point to talk about. I want to talk about intuition and kind of pick your brain about the idea, mm. of, especially <laughs> of emotional intuition and sort of to what degree do you or ought you to trust what's going on in your mind, in particular, your feelings, right? You mentioned kind of emotional reasoning. So you've got this whole chapter in your book on kind of trusting your gut and following your intuition, which makes sense because the whole title of your book and a lot of your work is that trust yourself, right? Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: yet, like, as you kind of pointed out with the idea of emotional reasoning, uh, intuition is notoriously unreliable. Like there's the whole like research, Daniel Kahneman and all the, I mean, he won a Nobel prize for pointing out all the ways our intuition is terrible <laughs> as a guide for decision making, <laughs> yes. right? And taking action. So I guess my, uh, what I'm curious about how you think about this idea of how do you know when to trust your gut or your feelings or mm. be skeptical of them? Like how, and I know that's mm. a huge question, but like, do you have any kind of guidelines or heuristics for how you think about that?
1: hmm Well, I would agree that, you know, I think it's, it has to be intuition paired with logical reasoning. That intuition on its own, we know is is not the best. And so it's a both and, not an either or here. So I, I want to be clear about that. But why I talk so much about intuition, gut sense, whatever you want to call it, intuition sounds a little woo, but frankly, I went with the word because I think it's time to reclaim it just as we need to reclaim the idea of sensitivity. So Intuition is really uh, that sense of being able to quickly calculate and have a judgment on something. And it works because in a fraction of a second, your, your mind is digging back into all of your past experiences, your memories, your preferences. And as a sensitive striver, because you're more perceptive and, and processing things more around you, you have a deeper well of data to pull from. And so our intuition tends to be more honed than than other people because we have spent so much time and we are just more deeply wired to be developing it. But what tends to happen is that we stop listening to it. Because we are overly vigilant at times, that's drive quality of vigilant of paying attention to other people, consulting other people about what they think is best, we don't ever pause to formulate our own opinion on a decision in our life or a point of view to a problem. And that's where I think intuition can serve us the most as a data point in our decision making, but not the totality of our decision making. So in the book, I go through uh, really a differentiation between intuition and fear, because it's, it's useful to follow and act on your intuition and consult that it's not as helpful to act on fear. (laughs) So your fear tends to be very, uh, feels like a um, pushing energy as if it's, as if you're avoiding a threat or some sort of punishment or rejection. It's, it's as if you want to avoid something bad. Whereas intuition feels more like a pulling energy that you're moving towards something that is in your best interest. Right. And I know a lot of this is a bit, uh, intangible. <laughs> it's it's developing this muscle of discernment of even paying attention to does this feel like a pushing energy or a pulling energy right now? Um, but fear tends to also fear, feel very frenetic and anxious, whereas intuition tends to feel much more calm, a calm sort of inner knowing. And I am sure and I even talk about in the book and in times in my own life where I have had a hard no. To to a situation or a hard yes to a situation, right? And you just know it in your gut in a in a matter of seconds, and that that is intuition. That is pulling from all that well of data, well of data to say yes, this is a green light, go towards it. Fear also tends to feel in your body like tenseness, constricting. You're minimizing, whereas intuition feels more relaxing, expanding, um, uh, spacious. For example. Fear tends to be very loud and critical. Intuition tends to be more quiet and supportive. Fear tends to thrive in chaos, right? When things are very busy and you're overstimulated, you're most often driven by fear, whereas intuition thrives in stillness. And that's often hard in today's world to make that space to even listen to yourself. And fear is driven by cognitive distortions, which I know, you know, that's what those are, but those are those mistakes in thinking, right? Errors in our thinking patterns where intuition is reflective of, of healthier, more accurate thinking and wisdom.
0: Wow. That's great. I mean, there's a follow-up book right in there. (laughs) That's, I think that this is, but it's such a big, it's such an important topic that, um, it's, it's rare that you hear people talk about it with any kind of specificity. So I really appreciate those, a lot of those distinctions and especially this kind of, um, like approach versus avoidance heuristic. I think Mm. that's very helpful actually, I think. And like you said, it's a little fuzzy at first, but it's about kind of developing a sensitivity, um, to feeling the difference in those two. And you get better at that, I think, um, like any kind of sensitivity in life, right? Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, okay that's, that's been really helpful let's uh, let 's jump back to imposter syndrome for a second. I, I, I want to run yeah. through this, um, and maybe the way to think about this is let's let 's kind of pretend that we 're colleagues right and i 've got this particularly <laughs> d- difficult case with imposter syndrome, and i 'm just kind of stumped and so i 'm going to kind of give you the case conceptualization. Um, or, or the kind of the details, and let 's just kind of like chat through it in terms of how we would how we would approach something like this. So this actually comes from a reader who said she 's kind of describing her situation with imposter syndrome, and so it, it's it 's a little bit long, not too long, but I, I think it 's important because there 's a lot of good details in here. so she said i don 't think I 've ever felt like a professional or competent teacher. I've now taught for over 10 years, and I still feel that way. Feeling inadequate is not a good feeling. I get lots of praise from my supervisors, and I tend to brush it off as flattery or kindness. How do I let the the doubt go? I constantly wonder and worry. Am I doing enough? Am I doing the right things? What if I'm found out as an amateur who is just winging it most days? What's most disturbing to me is I feel like I'm not skilled enough and that I'm always second-guessing myself. But when I look at other teachers, they seem so confident and comfortable in their work. Also lately, I've started to feel outdated and like I'm too old to be confident, but I'm only 53, right? I've been asked to take on teaching a advanced class next year. It's like a college level class in high school. I've been teaching mostly middle middle school since. My principal asked me to do it because he thinks I would be great at it, but I have doubts and fears that I won't do well. Okay, so I, I know there's a, there's a lot in there, um, mm-hmm. but I think it's, I don't know, I just found this really uh, descriptive and kind of yeah. evocative of what a lot of people, I think, struggle with. Um, so I don't know, where, where would you kind of start with something like this? Um, what, what are your kind of initial impressions when you hear this story?
1: Yeah, of course, there's, there's a lot to unpack here. But the, what stands out to me is the disconnect between this reader's accomplishments and her self-perception. And so to me, what stands out the most, two things, is addressing some of the thinking that is uh, perpetuating itself and just making her feel bad about feeling bad, and then also giving her tools to better internalize her accomplishments and respect them and value them herself. So a few things that I would say. One tool that is very useful to my clients that they enjoy is personifying this inner critic. I'm sure this reader would agree that she's, you know, she said, uh, he or she, I I should say, mentioned that imposter syndrome doesn't feel good, right? And so clearly the imposter syndrome is not the best reflection of who they are. And there are other, I know that for for all of us, we have multiple voices inside us and all of us have a supportive inner coach that just has not been given as much airtime as the imposter syndrome. So what can be helpful is creating those personas, specifically creating a, a persona for your inner critic, giving it a name outside of you. Uh, giving it an identity. You know, I have many clients who even get some sort of little totem. I had one client who got a little Lego action figure of Darth Vader and kept it on his desk. And that was his, his way to distance himself from his inner critic. And every time it would come up, he would say, all right, I see you, Darth. Realize like this is a passing state. I'm doing something that's challenging and I don't need to buy into what you're saying. So really starting to change that relationship with the inner critic to see that it's something that is meant to keep you safe. Many times it's there because uh, it wants to keep us out of risky situations that could uh, could be difficult or where we could get hurt. So it's your brain trying to do its job. But creating this sort of personification of your inner critic can be very helpful to gain a moment of distance from it, to instead just keep instead of going down this spiral and this rabbit hole, of, am I doing enough? Am I doing the right things? You're able to get that moment of pause to question, is this what I want to think? That would be the first thing I would offer. The The next would be something I call the think tool, which stands for, is the thought true? Is there is there evidence? Are there facts that point to it? Is there facts that point to the fact that this person is an amateur who is just winging it most days? Or what do the facts say? The facts say that this person has a lot of training, you know, decades of being a teacher, uh, great uh, performance, uh, you know, encouragement from the principal who's giving them this, this class. Uh, so is it true? Is it helpful? Does it help you move towards your goals or not? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it necessary to focus on this thought or even to act act on it? And is it kind? And if not, what is a more compassionate thought? And that's where, again, we come back to really developing your own inner coach. And so many of my clients will say to me, you know, the best thing that has happened through coaching is I feel like I have developed a little melody sitting on my shoulder at all times. And I just have you in my head helping me reframe and ask better questions and uh, just moving me ahead. And so that is always the goal is to develop, to quiet that inner critic and appease them and develop and strengthen that inner coach. That's what I would say on the mindset side on the internalizing wins side. This one, uh, a really helpful activity here that I would definitely be encouraging this reader to do is creating a brag book or a brag file where I have, uh, I have another client who is a teacher. And she has a brag file where she keeps positive reviews from parents, you know, positive emails from parents that she's received wonderful cards or, or gifts from uh, her students over the past years. And so this is a place where you can capture all of those wonderful things. Myself, I have a whiteboard next to me that has, you know, all wonderful Quotes and sentiments from clients. And when I feel down, I go to that and it helps ground me back to what I know are my strengths. Um, So, creating that sort of brag file, even making it a daily exercise where you are reflecting on three daily wins and not necessarily defining a win as something that went well and amazing, but a win is I overcame some moment of resistance, I had a hard conversation, I pushed through something when I felt uncomfortable. So even starting to redefine and get away from that perfectionistic definition of what a win is. And one of the other things I would say a a very helpful um, exercise I do in my workshops is I have people do a DIY 360 where they ask, you know, three to seven people in their professional life, colleagues, former colleagues, bosses, whoever it may be to you send around an email and you can blame this on me said, you know, I was doing some professional development work and uh, wanted your help with this exercise. Could, would you mind answering two quick questions? Number one, what do you see as my top three skills? And number two, what would you say is my number one strength and how it has benefited our work together or our relationship? This is really scary to do. People always say, I was scared to death to send this email because I thought people would laugh at me or that they would have nothing to say. But inevitably, what they get back is life-changing many times. And also really interesting in that it doesn't surprise them what they get back, but what they start to see themselves through other people's eyes. And what they start to realize is the things that they... That we so readily undermine in ourselves is exactly what other people value in us. Yet we don't we don't realize that or grasp onto it. So that's what I would have this person going through. And of course, I take a very coachy perspective to this. Like, let's let's go with the action. Come on! Um, but that's a few different exercises and tools I would offer.
0: Melody, this is awesome. Um, in part, because I feel like this is so your answer to this question, your answers to this question, they're so you, and they're so sensitive striver, right? Like they're, 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 (laughs) they're, they're, they're striver in the sense that they're very practical and they're so like, they're so straightforward, um, and, and helpful, but the way you talk about these things is also very compassionate, um, and sort of understanding and, and thoughtful. And so I, yeah, I don't. I don't know. That's not a question. Obviously, <laughs> just a reflection. <laughs> well, back. thank you. Um, yeah,
1: I receive and accept your compliment.
0: Bingo! You guys paying attention? There we go. <laughs> um, okay, so first of all, I, real quick, a couple quick comments on that. Um, I love the the brag book idea. One of the best things. I remember listening to a podcast years ago, kind of right right before I started um, blogging and, and podcasting and doing stuff online, and it was like a business podcast, and someone was saying. You know, at some point you're going to get to the point where you've got, you, you want to be able to put, you know, whether it's on your website or on a book or you want to be able to put testimonials from people who have, yes. you know, found your work and found it really helpful. And you want those specifics as it helps other people kind of see the value in your work. And so they said, just whether you think you need it or not, just like have a little file in your, in your notes app or, or on paper. And you just just mark those down. Whenever some, someone sends you a nice email or leaves a nice comment, just copy and paste it in there and just have it there. Trust me, you'll like this. You, it'll be help, really helpful. You'll be glad you did it later on. And I totally am. It's been super helpful in that technical sense. But I think one of the really cool things about it is it's so helpful psychologically and emotionally. I it's My go-to habit is anytime I get a really negative like Snarky comment from somebody I, I read it and then I go right to my file of testimonials of all these like wonderful kind of glowing things that people have said about how much they appreciate me and my work and how helpful it's been and and it's just a yeah it's such an empowering thing to do so anyway I think that's that's just such a great um, a great uh, practice to get into in whatever form kind of works for people's lives okay one question I want to dive into kind of back to the mindset thing. Um, sort of talking about this idea of the you i love this idea of personifying your kind of inner critic or negative self-talk right and even kind of creating an an, sort of another like inner mentor or or kind of um support person so one thing i think a lot about as a therapist um and as a podcaster and talking to people in this in this space but this sort of tension between um when when you're dealing with negative self-talk a lot of times you there it it can be really helpful to get in there identify it kind of challenge it re like restructure it come up with better alternatives Just really yeah get in there and engage with the the negative self-talk hopefully with the long-term goal of kind of transforming it or giving yourself a better model on the other hand that it can be a slippery slope right like if you get too kind of combative with your self-talk, you can end up in more negative self-talk and worry and self-criticism. And, and sometimes it seems like the best approach is just to kind of acknowledge it and say, all right, you know, imposter syndrome, there you are. You're welcome to hang out, but I'm going to get back to whatever it is I was doing. I'm, I'm not going to engage with you at all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's to, to, you know, point out flaws in your reasoning or provide better data, or I'm just going to sort of acknowledge it. Validate it and then kind of move on. So, how do you think through this dilemma? Like, how do you know which approach to take, either with yourself or when you're working with clients? Or, I'm just curious how you how you think through that.
1: It's a great question. It depends on how hooked someone is by the story, uh, and I'll bring this back to the the strive qualities. When particularly when someone's sensitivity in the strive qualities, which is. Refers to our physiological response. So, being very uh, sensitivity is unbalanced. We are very highly overstimulated. We're very stressed, uh, anxious. And so, if I can tell someone is in that state, then they are already in their fear response. We're not working with, you know, frontal, prefrontal brain where they can actually engage with with their thoughts and have better reasoning they're in a fear state and they're just going to continue to spiral out and so for me it's really assessing going back to those strive qualities and seeing how many how what resources are we working with and going in that way
0: yeah that's kind of one of my approaches is often the the really cognitive stuff like identifying negative self-talk getting in there kind of challenging it restructuring it um for a lot of people who are really just activated in the moment, it can be too hard to do that in the moment. And so I, I sort of yeah. almost have them do it like a post mortem, like later that evening, think back right. and and try to and as you get better at it and more intuitive with the framework, you can start doing it earlier and earlier, eventually hopefully being able to do it like in the moment, right? Which in the can moment. be really helpful. Exactly. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting you brought this up because I went back and forth so many times of, of in the book, I have one chapter on managing emotions and another on overcoming overthinking. And I just, I went, I overthought what order (laughs) to put them in. And Ultimately, I landed on putting managing emotions ahead of overthinking because in my experience, unless we get through the very intense emotional response that we have, that blocks us from doing more of the cognitive rational examination. So that's my approach to it is that I think. You know, when we're we're talking about how we have emotional responses, that many times it starts with our thoughts. That then triggers emotions. But in order to get out of that spiral, we have to go the opposite way and address the emotions first. And then we're able to address the cognitive component.
0: Yeah. And it, it really fits with what we talked about earlier um, with the idea of kind of um, feeling bad about feeling bad. <laughs> like before you address the yes. initial thing just don't add that second layer of getting down on yourself for mm-hmm. feeling bad. So just acknowledge, okay, I fe- you know, I'm feeling like an imposter, right? It's too much. I'm kind of overwhelmed right now. I'm going to kind of, I'm acknowledging that I'm going to get on with it. And maybe I have a plan, you know, later on this evening, I'm going to kind of work through that and analyze it and kind of look at what happened. Um, but to expect to be able to do all of that in the moment when things are super overwhelming, um, maybe not yeah. always the best, the best approach.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
0: Well, Melody, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for uh, for making the time to do this. Um, I should say that M- Melody was uh, gracious enough to give me an advanced copy of the book, um, and it was fantastic. So like, if you like kind of the stuff we're talking about and you like Melody's approach, you will really like the book, trust yourself. Um, and it's is it out already or is it still in pre-order?
1: It will be out May 4th. So depending on when this comes out, it may be out in the world. But yes, May 4th star wars day hoping it's good luck
0: (laughs) that's great yeah so where can people go to learn more about the book and sort of you and your work generally
1: yeah you can find the book anywhere books are sold amazon barnes noble local bookstore and you can find more about me and my work and the book as well at melodywilding.com hey
0: everyone thanks so much for listening to this episode of mine's mike's If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing minds and mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.